Section 40 of Mark Twain's Autobiography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Wednesday, April 4, 1906. The Morris Case Again. Scope of this autobiography, a mirror. More about Nast Sale, laurels for Mr. Clemens. Clippings in regard to Woman's University Club reception. Mr. Clemens comments on them. Vassar benefit at Hudson Theatre. Mr. Clemens meets many old friends. Mrs. Morris case in Senate. Nomination of Barnes opens way for an inquiry. Special to the New York Times. Washington, April 3rd. Criticism of the appointment of Mr. Roosevelt's assistant secretary, B. F. Barnes, to be postmaster of Washington, continues. It now seems likely that the appointment may have a hard time in passing the Senate. Barnes' action in having Mrs. Minor Morris put out of the White House is the chief ground of opposition. The Senate Committee on the Post Offices and Post Roads has determined to investigate Barnes' action in the Morris case, and eyewitnesses of the affair have been summoned to appear before the committee tomorrow and tell what they saw. This is the same investigation which Mr. Tillman requested and which the Senate refused to grant. It now comes as the result of the President's action in appointing Barnes postmaster. The witnesses who are to appear before the committee were not asked to testify in the investigation which the President made when he decided that Barnes' course was justified. There was much speculation today as to who Mr. Barnes' successor as assistant secretary would be. The Evening Star tonight devotes a column and a half to suggestions on the subject, saying that the leading candidates are John L. McGrew, a clerk in the White House offices, Warren Young, chief executive clerk, M. C. Latta, the president's personal stenographer, James J. Corbett of New York, Robert Fitzsimmons, Augustus Rulin, and James J. Jeffries. The article is illustrated with two pictures of Corbett and Fitzsimmons. That is neat, and causes me much gentle delight. The point of that whole matter lies in the last four names that are mentioned in it. These four men are prize-fighters, the most celebrated ones now living. Is the incident now closed? Again, we cannot tell. The smell of it may linger in American history a thousand years yet. This autobiography of mine differs from other autobiographies, differs from all other autobiographies, except Benvenuto's, perhaps. The conventional biography of all the ages is an open window. The autobiographer sits there and examines and discusses the people that go by, not all of them, but the notorious ones, the famous ones, those that wear fine uniforms and crowns when it is not raining, and very great poets and great statesmen illustrious people with whom he has had the high privilege of coming in contact. 
he likes to toss a wave of recognition to these with his hand as they go by and he likes to notice that the others are seeing him do this and admiring he likes to let on that in discussing these occasional people that wear the good clothes he is only interested in interesting his reader and is in a measure unconscious of himself but this autobiography of mine is not that kind of an autobiography this autobiography of mine is a mirror and i am looking at myself in it all the time incidentally i notice the people that pass along at my back i get glimpses of them in the mirror and whenever they say or do anything that can help advertise me and flatter me and raise me in my own estimation i set these things down in my autobiography i rejoice when a king or a duke comes my way and makes himself useful to this autobiography but they are rare customers with wide intervals between i can use them with good effect as lighthouses and monuments along my way but for real business i depend upon the common herd here is some more about the nast sale thirty cents for mccurdy poem other literary curiosities from the nast collection at auction the sale of autograph letters wash drawings and pencil and pen ink sketches the property of the late thomas nast the cartoonist was continued yesterday by the merwin clayton company five letters from theodore roosevelt as police commissioner colonel of the rough riders governor and president to mr nast thanking him for sketches and expressing warm friendship for the cartoonist brought prices ranging from a dollar fifty to two dollars and twenty-five cents richard a mccurdy's autograph letter and original autograph poem addressed to nast with a typewritten copy of the poem brought thirty cents the lot the following letter written by general philip h sheridan to nast was bid in at twelve dollars and twenty-five cents by j h manning a son of the late daniel manning may twelfth eighteen seventy five dear nast it is true i will be married on the thirtieth of june coming unless there is a slip between the cup and the lip which is scarcely possible i will not have any wedding for many reasons among them the recent death of my father i am very happy but wish the damn thing was over yours truly sheridan p s and m i i send the enclosed for your oldest please send me yours to be kept for mine p h s a letter written by lincoln and which was laid over a piece of white silk bearing a faded red stain sold for thirty-eight dollars the attached certificate stated that the silk was from the dress of laura keene worn on the night of lincoln's assassination and that the stain was made by his blood 
General W. T. Sherman's letter to Nast, dated March 9, 1879, endorsing a testimonial of the cartoonist's services to the Army and Navy, sold for six dollars. A scrapbook containing sketches of Lincoln, Sumner, Greeley, Walt Whitman, and many watercolor sketches brought seventy-five dollars. A sketch of William M. Tweed and his companion Hunt, under arrest, brought twenty-one dollars. Two companion Christmas sketches by Nast, representing a child telephoning to Santa Claus, brought $43 each. A sketch of General Grant was bid in for $36. A sketch of the G.O.P. elephant brought $28. A sketch representing the Savior, full face, with Nimbus, brought $65. An autograph photograph of Theodore Roosevelt, dated 1884, was bid in at $5. It is a great satisfaction to me to notice that I am still ahead, ahead of Roosevelt, ahead of Sherman, ahead of Sheridan, even ahead of Lincoln. These are fine laurels, but they will not last. A time is coming when some of them will wither. A day will come when a mere scratch of Mr. Lincoln's pen will outsell a whole basketful of my letters. A time will come when a scratch of the pens of those immortal soldiers, Sherman and Sheridan, will outsell a thousand scratches of mine, and so I shall enjoy my supremacy now while I may. I shall read that clipping over forty or fifty times now while it is new and true, and let the desolating future take care of itself. Day before yesterday, all Vassar, ancient and modern, packed itself into the Hudson Theater, and I was there. The occasion was a benefit arranged by Vassar and its friends to raise money to aid poor students of that college in getting through the college course. I was not aware that I was to be a feature of the show, and was distressed and most uncomfortably inflamed with blushes when I found it out. Really the distress and the blushes were manufactured, for at bottom I was glad. I held a reception on that stage for an hour or two, and all Vassar ancient and modern, shook hands with me. Some of the moderns were too beautiful for words, and I was very friendly with those. I was so hoping somebody would want to kiss me for my mother, but I didn't dare to suggest it myself. Presently, however, when it happened, I did what I could to make it contagious, and succeeded. This required art, but I had it in stock. I seemed to take the old and the new as they came without discrimination, but I averaged the percentage to my advantage, and without anybody's suspecting, I think. Among that host I met again as many as half a dozen pretty old girls whom I had met in their bloom at Vassar that time 
that Susie and I visited the college so long ago. Yesterday at the university club almost all the five hundred were of the young and lovely, untouched by care, unfaded by age. There were girls there from Smith, Wellesley, Radcliffe, Vassar, and Barnard, together with a sprinkling of college girls from the South, from the Middle West, and the Pacific Coast. I delivered a moral sermon to the Barnard girls at Columbia University a few weeks ago, and now it was like being among old friends. There were dozens of Barnard girls there, scores of them, and I had already shaken hands with them at Barnard. As I have said, the reporter heard many things there yesterday, but there were several which he didn't hear. One sweet creature wanted to whisper in my ear, and I was nothing loath. She raised her dainty form on tiptoe, lifting herself with a grip of her velvet hands on my shoulders, and put her lips to my ear, and said, How do you like being the belle of New York? It was so true, and so gratifying, that it crimsoned me with blushes, and I could make no reply. The reporter lost that. Two girls, one from Maine, the other from Ohio, were grandchildren of fellow passengers who sailed with me in the Quaker City in the Innocents Abroad excursion thirty-nine years ago. End of section 40, Wednesday, April 4th, 1906.